Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary vgw group void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Nesson Dormer's deep dive into Arsenal's 1997-98 season. We're in part two now, so if you haven't heard part one, hit the uh, back button, find part one, listen to that, and we'll be ready for you on the other side. My name is Gary Naylor, and I'm at Gary Naylor 999 and I'm delighted to be joined again by Rob Smythe. Hello, Rob. Morning. And Mike Gibbons. Hello, Mike. Hi, Gary. Hi. Uh, so, we had reached, I think, Rob... Um, a, a, a kind of blip in this season, but uh, we were sort of part way through it, part way rewinding it. I think we were we were at Oakwell. Is that the case? Not not quite, Gary. No, you haven't, ah. done, you haven't done your research. Have you? No, I haven't. <laughs> no, Somebody really should have briefed me better before we started. <laughs> we, were, uh, we were at Arsenal's five 0 win over Barnsley at Highbury. At um, Highbury, oh. which put them top after ten games, six wins, four draws, and I think nearly thirty goals scored. They they looked sensational with Overmars in particular and Bergkamp in the form of his life. Then they had a very bizarre blip over about a two-month period where they lost four, won two out of eight games. But crucially, within that period, they beat the champions Man United 3-2, which was a really massive victory, psychologically as much as anything, because um, it was the first time in a long while that United, they'd beaten United certainly when they were challenging for the league, but more to the point, United were on a run of form where they were scoring seven, six, five. They, their goal scoring was absolutely crazy around that period. Um, so it was really important. They weren't actually that far ahead because they'd started the season quite slowly, but they'd hit a gear that looked so ominous. So it was very important for us to peg them back. But just before that, we should say, so they drew 0-0 away at Palace, 0-0 at home to Aston Villa when Matty Petit was sent off for sort of half shoving the referee. Then they had a, Dismal 3-0 defeat at Derby. Derby were a good side, but it was still a dismal performance. Then the following weekend, they played um, United at Highbury. Um, and I'll let Mike come in here. 
Yeah, it's well, massive game this, wasn't it? And um, yeah, really, just really brilliant performance from them. They shot out into a a two 0 lead in the first half. So I think maybe in the first twenty minutes, I might have that um, slightly wrong. No, there. Yeah, sorry, Rob. First half an hour, but yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, just to refer back to that that soccer box thing we referred to earlier. Uh, Gary never watched this game back with Ian Wright and was just cringing at his own defending here. Because so oh, he lets um, it, he gives Anelka loads of space for the first, doesn't he? Yeah, so Anelka kind of spins uh, on the corner of the box and just uh, yeah, Neville doesn't close him down quickly enough. He just rasps the shot past um, Smarkle. That, that was eight, his, eighteen as well at this. That point, was his first goal, I think. Certainly his first league goal. Yeah, definitely his first Premier League goal. I think. Yeah, and. Um, yeah, not long after that, um, Vieira scores a great goal as well. Uh, the ball comes out to him on the edge of the box and he booms a shot that actually on the replay. See, Gary Neville actually ducks under it because I, <laughs> I think he thinks it's going over. Um, and it's kind of past Schmeichel before he can throw a hand at it, really. And it, it so, you know, Vieira, off the bar. Vieira celebrated with a knee slide and he actually injured himself doing it and had to go off at half time, which could have been coffee. It wasn't, <laughs> but um, yeah. Yeah, I always cringe when players do knees. Oh, I know. Quite, yeah. I, I do as well. It's a Simon Jones thing, isn't it? it uh, yeah. Just once you've seen it once. Can you can you let me know where the kind of United Arsenal rivalry was? Obviously, you know the it's the early stages of Ferguson Wenger, and we talked about that a little in part yeah. one. But Arsenal United became kind of the rivalry. But had it had it started to bubble at this point? Well, you have to really go back to 1983 um, when there was a, a clash between Remy Moses and David O'Leary. That's the genesis of it, really. And then there was a, quite a lot in the 80s, a lot of needle, which people have spoken about in the past, you know, Norman Whiteside booting them all around Old Trafford. Oh, and God, getting yeah. David Rokask sent off. Brian McClare's missed penalty and Nigel Whitburn giving him a full and frank appraisal of his penalty technique. <laughs> um, then the following year, they played at Old Trafford and McClare Winterman clashed and McClare basically started picking, picked him up by the lapels basically and just started he, he, like one of the most mild-mannered intelligent men in football and basically turned into Al Capone. Um, <laughs> then there was the famous Battle of Old Trafford in 1990 when they were both had dot points. After that it became a bit friendly and there was still a bit going on. There was um, Eric Cantona was sent off, Mark Hughes was sent off, uh, Ian Wright chinned Steve Bruce in the tunnel at Old Trafford. But it, but it was... <laughs> It was relatively mild, I say that, because partly because they, they crossed over in terms of when they were challenging for the league. So Arsenal were dominant until 91 when they won it for the second time in three years. And they almost swapped at that point. United went from being a cup team to a league and cup team and Arsenal became a cup team. So 96-7, it was reignited by the racism row and then by Wenger and Ferguson. But this is the first season really in a long, long time. You're talking decades when they were properly challenging for the league together um so it, i would say it, it, it was it was bubbling up really nicely i mean it wouldn't peak until a few years later when keen and vieira really got because keen for example didn't play in this game because he had done his cruciate trying to do alfin goal and um so the keen keen vieira thing this is just an aside we think of it as a constant rivalry from 96 to 05 but actually it took a while to bubble it didn't really get going to 98 when um, King came back from injury but even then I find this quite interesting in his first autobiography which was published in 02 Vier- I, th- I think Vieira's mentioned once if that um, so there's a degree of hindsight I think um, 
But to answer your question, I think this is a game that got it going in terms of it gave Arsenal belief they could genuinely challenge United. And I think it also gave United a little warning. I mean, I, I would say after this game, it still felt like United were strong favourites. It felt like a, a just one of those good games that you lose sometimes. But I think probably when it came to the return game in March, it had a, a slightly bigger impact on the subconscious of both sides than we realised. And then I would say the rivalry fully exploded in the treble season, next season, Man United's treble season, when it's the best domestic opponent I've ever seen against United. I mean, and the best game I've ever seen, certainly in England, was played between the two. And I, I think that was the peak of the rivalry in terms of quality and intensity. And then nastiness would kind of come a bit later with all, you know, pizza fights and all that stuff. Can I just... Yeah, I, I'll, I'll shut up now. No, 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 no. That's, that's, that's fired something in, in my mind. I just want to go down a, a, a little bit of a, uh, a sidetrack here because I think it is interesting and I'd be interested in your view, Mike, because you're more of an insider on this than, than me for sure, is that at that time there was kind of vestigial web presences. There was probably Football 365 with with um, Danny Kelly. Um, there was Guardian Unlimited was probably around then. Uh, the Sun for a long time, for example, didn't really have a, a web presence. Um, there were 606 phone-in show on what was then, I think, Radio 2. I don't think 5 Live had launched. Maybe it had launched, but it certainly... There was, I don't even know if there was Sky Sports News. It may have come, but there was certainly not the kind of huge Jim White manufactured events for, for um, Transfer Deadline Day, for example. So this rivalry gained a, a kind of traction, but almost all of it was was sort of at the time, so to speak. There wasn't the oxygen of publicity being pumped in by social media, by phone-in shows. Um, it was blokes talking in a pub and the immediate sort of uh, panels after on, on Match of the Day or, or Super Sunday that was that was puffing this. Um, how how different really was the landscape then? And, and can you imagine what it would be like today if there was uh, this kind of rivalry now when the levels of outrage that can appear on social media and hype that can appear on talk sport were around I'll I'll finish off this long sort of (laughs) ramble by asking Mike whether this is a good or bad thing not just for the body politic perhaps uh, but for football in general that that it plays that this level of intensity is is kind of sits there in the corner of our lives shouting at us day in day out well i think the the good thing about this rivalry was because it predates social media it's it's just it's just so depressing now how that just drives the news agenda um constantly is it it was allowed to fester really so from match to match you know if there was any lingering grievance from one game to another it didn't get played out, you know, on ah, yes. on on yeah. social media and things like that. So it just it just it just was allowed to build. Um, it, it was kind of on, on simmer the whole time until until you met again, kind of thing. I can't remember really the point at which that changed. I would say maybe the shoving round of Van Nistelrooy at Old Trafford yeah. because there was a lot of fallout from that. I mean, that was just in the papers for days, and then uh, yeah, Fergie, and there was more kind of. 
by that stage, you know, briefing of the press and things like that, and you know, leaking things than there used to be. Or it seems to me that there was anyway. It just um, it was just it was just driven in a different way, I think. Um, whereas this this felt more organic, really. Um, yeah, if that's the right if that's the right phrase for it. I think, I think and, that and is. made for, made for a better rivalry. I think totally. because of that. Yeah, yeah it was a, a, a small window, really, where kind of new football and old football met. Just in, in, in everything, there was a bit more coverage, but there wasn't too much coverage. There were more foreign players, so the quality of football was much higher, but there was still the physical intensity of the football we grew up with. It was a perfect little, it was a perfect storm in many ways. I mean, I'm probably biased, but it's by miles the best football rivalry I've ever seen. I would give so much to relive any of those games, even the defeats, just for that kind of heightened feeling. Like, yeah, um, yeah just, yeah, just perfect someone should write the one, a book on it yeah the, the one thing i wouldn't do actually is um you know if you could have that rivalry again i wouldn't stage it now no you know, social media no no can you imagine <laughs> yeah. the other thing you're right i think it would be blown out too early because you're right so many of the excesses would be clamped down on i mean there was an element of that you know for example in the God, we're going miles off piece here but anyway if the tunnel route the keen vieira thing even before that i think there was talk of the met police getting met police got involved because mm. um Fergie and Wenger have been slagging each other off for months and um, basically they were worried about crowd trouble. And whatever. So there was an element, but you're right, I think it would be out of control now. Um, and even the coverage as well, I think would be a lot more pious. Um, yeah. It was just, it was a perfect little window, really. But you're right, at this point, there wasn't a lot. At one, one point, John Sperling, who's a really good Arsenal historian, makes the point that the Jumbotron at Arsenal, that huge screen, was actually quite an important little de- technological development because... Mm. You'd always have, they'd always flash up like Fergie chewing his gum and there'd be this almighty vitriol. And it really added to it that hateful atmosphere which fueled that game and actually made it for a while a seriously hard place for United to go. They, for a long period, they barely got a result there, starting with this game, actually. I'll just throw one other element in there. And I, I liked it about the rivalry because as, as long as, you know, players are not injuring each other to the extent that they're. The losing careers. There weren't that, that many. Just, there weren't many. Ian Wright did a terrible tackle on Schweigel, but there were mitigating circumstances. There was a lot of you know playground posturing, and there was yeah. and Keane and Vieira swung punches at each other. But there weren't. I don't. I, I can't remember. I can remember some really bad tackles. You know, but actually there was one by Van Nistelrooy and Ashley Cole as well. But generally, oh, yeah. it was more kind of comedy booting people up in the air, which I know isn't great and blah blah blah. But it's there, it, there is a difference between that and a genuinely malicious. Studs yeah. over the ball tackle. Yeah, because that's the, the the two things that I really don't like um, that you get in in sport when it turns nasty. And it, it used to be more in rugby, although since it's gone professional, there's, there's less of it. Is that the genuine challenge that tries to hurt yeah. someone and yeah, is a, a leg breaker? The other one is I, I don't mind two two blokes, you know, swinging punches at each other. As, as, the chance of somebody getting hurt by a non-professional boxer is is fairly low, but it's the one where you get hit from behind, where you can't brace yourself for it, and someone whacks you from that you can't even see it coming. And I, I don't like, like that very much. Either. Like Anders Limpard, Brian McLaren, <laughs> he, kind of, he kind of belts him round the ear and then charges off, and I think it throws him over an advertising board. <laughs> McLaren, I think, had like a, had to have stitches in his ear. 
But yeah. that, but that was different, you know. That's completely different. But it was more like a half cuff around the uh, ear rather than a punch to the temple. Yeah, a full a full uh, a full uh, hammering. Uh, yeah. The the other thing that that I liked about this rivalry, and it it's gone and it's gone forever now because of of mm. the way the media works, is that. Um, when I look at, at kind of uh, not just at social media, but when I listen to bloody talk sport or whatever, whoever's talking about it, so much seems to revolve around the referees. The referee should have done this, and you know, I know, I know um, fans of clubs who seem to keep a file on which referee sort of mm. denied them a penalty in yeah. two thousand and seven. Where they're none born, of that, everything. Yeah. yeah, none of this seemed to matter then. Well, the referees were almost, you know, they said, "Oh, should have had a better." I agree with you. It's the players that would have the rivals. I agree with you largely, but I wouldn't mention the name Mike Riley in any article. No, I, I, yeah, I, I <laughs> but I, but of... I agree with you. I agree with you generally. Even if there were injustices, they generally weren't spoken about Look, that much. Really, you're talking to an Everton fan, and when you talk to an Everton fan, you only speak for for a minute or two before the the name Clive Thomas comes. Up. So <laughs> we, we all we all know that there are exceptions to the the but, rule. No, I agree what, with you. what it mainly was it was a, it was a, a rival between footballers who had through circumstances um gained a, a, a genuine um sense of of uh, of rivalry um which spilled over at times it's almost the kind of opposite of the of the absurd sort of press conferences that boxers have where we're going to take him in five or whatever it is you know the, the, this manufactured malice mm. um this was this was real and there was all there was all absolutely right rob there were few but there were enough um genuine nastiness to give you that kind of and it would be wrong to deny it's a the, the atavistic feelings that we that we harbour within our sort of caveman selves, the chance that it might just bubble over the top, mm. it might just go to the full scale sort of uh, battle of Old Trafford again, uh, that was part of the thrill uh, mm. of, of of watching it, no totally, matter who, totally whether you were invested or not. But what I would, I completely agree. With, what I would also say, and this is really important, and I think it's underplayed. Thierry Henry often makes the point that because of the intensity and the aggression, people often forget the sheer quality of the football. I think to just have the the aggression, it would have still been entertaining, but it wouldn't have been anything like as good without... I mean, this game is a good example of 3-2 because you've got some fantastic goals, two from Arsenal, Anelka and um, Vieira. Teddy Sheringham scores a brilliant goal for United to equalise. Mm. Um, throughout, really, you look, Thierry Henry scored the goal of his life in this fixture. Ryan Giggs did. There were just so many. There was... So many games with the, the, the um, FA Cup semi-final. It was just, yeah, the actual football was outstanding most of the time. There were very few. There were, funnily enough, the, the game when they all start shoving around this road, that was a bit of a stinker. But most of the games were really not quite end-to-end because United towards the end became a bit cagier and a bit more counter-attacking. But they were still, the quality was still really high. Yeah, I think that's absolutely uh, true. Um, I think we're still in the blip. Is that is that right, we're still, Mike? We're, uh-huh. we're at 2-0 against Man United. <laughs> yeah. I'll go back to you, Mike, after that uh, rather long uh, wander down a path from Highbury to Ashburton Grove or whatever. Yeah, so Rob mentions, yeah, so United were level by half-time. Um, Sheringham scored twice, uh, the, the second of which, as uh, Rob just mentioned, was a brilliant goal. Um after a first-time flip from Giggs, and he just lashes it into the bottom corner. Um, 
and then Sharon, I think, kissed his badge as well at the Arsenal. Well. He's, he's not long uh, transferred across from um, Tottenham. It's, someone, it's... someone complained to the police about that, which is a, a depressing, <laughs> yeah. a depressing kind of note of twenty twenty in that within that rivalry. Yeah, that's very very portentous. That feels. Yeah, it? It is, yeah. Oh, yeah. So um, it's and it's worth saying for what a big game this was. For, I mean, for both sides, obviously, but for Arsenal because United were established. They'd won four of the five previous Premier League titles. Uh, Keane was out for the season. Cantona retired at the end of the previous season, but they'd replaced him with um, Sheringham. And I think there was a real danger or a sense that they might pull away. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, and just rattle off, a, you know, a, an unprecedented number of leagues in a row. So it was, um, it was quite important for Arsenal to peg them out. And actually, Wenger said after the game, after they won it, he said the result benefited English football. Because it kept it uh, competitive, and then Fer- Ferguson, which I, th- I think he kind of meant as a backhanded compliment, said, uh, "You know, it's in the interest of the, of the league for it to be not to be a one-horse race." So, um, yeah, two-two think... into. Oh, sorry, go. On. No, I was just. Gonna, I think Wenger said later that actually at half-time he feared they'd lose because Vieira had gone off and the kind of time was with United, but they actually they played so well in the second half. I I think this is one of the first. This is the first time I looked at Ray Parlour and thought he was a serious player. He, in the second half, he was absolutely brilliant in a midfield without Vieira. Um, but I'll, I'll let you describe what happens next. But yeah, I think it's what I think this is his. I mean, Arsenal fans will probably know more, but it, certainly to me as a kind of detached observer, this felt like his breakthrough game. Um, yeah. So was it? Did uh, Platt come on for Vieira? Was that the substitution? Possibly, or he may have started because Petit would Petit have been suspended for shoving. Oh, of course, yeah, the referee. Yeah. I'll, um, I'll have a quick check while you're talking. Arsenal, Arsenal, Arsenal did play really well in the second half. There's one brilliant save Schmeichel makes from um, incredible, isn't it? Uh, from uh, Christopher Ray, is it? I think it's yeah. a deflect, deflected shot. Oh, is, it, is it Ray or is it right? Oh, it's Ray. It's Ray. It's Ray. Ray, I think. Yeah, which almost deflects past him, and he just kind of throws a hand behind his head and hooks it out. It's a brilliant save. But um, yeah, from a corner with uh, seven minutes to go. Uh, the last great moment of David Platt's career, basically. Uh, where he wins the header and he guides it over Phil Neville and into the top corner. And that's that's the uh that's the winning goal. And it's um yeah, in the same way I think we mentioned earlier, or yesterday, <laughs> is that uh, it's quite bittersweet for Ian Wright um in many ways this time. I think the same is true for David Platt as well. It's mm. uh I think he played one more season after this. I think for Forest, didn't he? And then, yeah, um, he's, he just—I mean, you know more about this as well because you were '96. But his career really did just fall off a cliff, didn't it? I thought he—I think a lot of Arsenal fans as well thought he was a great signing. Some say they were even more excited than Bert, about his signing the Bergkamp, but it just didn't happen, really. Yeah, we'd been the England captain, you know, three years in or four years, wasn't it, in Serie A? Um, scoring all the time every time he played for England, pretty much. It's yeah, just, yeah, it's strange. It just didn't work out for him at all, you know. When he came back, I'm going to congratulate you partly uh, because um, yesterday I had the misfortune of uh, watching Robbie Savage and Tim Sherwood in the uh, in the Amazon Prime Studio. But um, you've gone so far uh, in this match without using the uh, deathless phrase, putting down a marker. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Because uh, the problem with cliches is that they're true, aren't they? So was this putting down a marker? No, I well, I mean, I I don't think it became a marker until near the time they went to Old Trafford. I think at the time, this 
certainly from a United point of view, it felt like a really irritating defeat, but it still felt like it wasn't that indicative of anything. It was just a really good game. Could have gone either way and United lost it. And Arsenal, because they didn't follow this up with anything, they um, they lost three in the next four, in fact, um, yeah. including two defeats at home. So that, I, I, But I do think by the time they went to Old Trafford, they weren't afraid in a way they might have been previously. So the next four games, they had a decent win at Newcastle, 1-0, but they lost at Sheffield, where they'd stopped scoring goals, basically, apart from... Apart from the United game, they scored one in a seven-game period. Um, wow. So I think that's right. Um, anyway, so they they had the Nadir was a defeat home to Blackburn in mid-December. They were spanked three-one, and um, it all kicked off basically. I think he and Wright had a, a full and frank exchange of views. There's a nice line actually Mike dug up from the Guardian. It said Ian Wright was booed off in this game. According to the Guardian, he responded by appearing. At the window of the East Stand, clad in vest and underpants, haranguing the crowd. Um, <laughs> can, I, can I just give you a little bit of context yeah. about, about that? Because I used to live uh, in the um, mid-80s. I lived for a year uh, in Avenal Road, which is the road on yes. which uh, the the turnstiles for the North Bank are, are located. And um, the, the beautiful uh, stands that sit opposite each other at the old Highbury, which you can still see now, even though it's a kind of housing development, uh, the kind of Art Deco uh, stands with the kind of, is it stucco? It certainly was a, a, a kind of whitewashed walls. They had these little windows um, that were obviously into dressing rooms and so on and so forth. And they were often used um, after matches, obviously when there were, were uh, sort of they had won a trophy or something. The players would appear at those at those windows, but they were often um, after matches. You'd have sort of crowds in the street, and by crowds in the street, you know, a crowd in the street is fifty people. You know, it doesn't need to be thousands. But players would appear at windows and they'd wave and they'd get cheers and so on. This is at sort of you know five twenty or five thirty after a Saturday game or something. But what it also gave is the opportunity, and and there were times after defeats. Where players would would hang out of the the window um, and and sort of you know get shouted at by the crowd and and would shout back. But as is the uh, the um, case often with with sort of crowds and mobs and outside, you could never really hear what was being said. Um, so Ian Wright appearing at the window would not be an uncommon no. uh, thing. And I don't know of any other football ground, certainly not today because it's all managed and everything else, where top-class international Premier League elite players would be able to sort of lead out and shout at the crowd who would, who would shout back at them. But such was was a regular occurrence at the old Highbury. Mm. No, it's a good point. Now they just got on their phones and get called a twat. Yes, that's uh, that, that's yeah. right. But I, I, one, I uh, one throwing one thing... scarves out the windows and stuff like this. But anyway, <laughs> one uh, on, thing Mike. from around that time, actually, just before Christmas. Uh, 97. I remember um, on BBC Sports Personality of the Year, I think Ian Wright was one of the 10 contenders for the uh, the main award. Was he? And they, yeah, they did, uh, well, he'd broken the Arsenal scoring record that Oh, that's year. true. And at least he had a personality unlike many of the contenders. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And um, yeah, so he, he was interviewed on a video link um, and they were asking him, well, do you think Arsenal can win the title? And, I, and he was saying, oh, I've you know, we can just um, 
get ourselves sorted and you know get on a bit of a run. I think we've got a chance. I remember looking at where they were in the league table at the time. It's just I'm almost chuckling to myself, thinking, "Well, you're not going to win it from from there." I mean, yeah, they were like eighth or something, <clears throat> like albeit with games in hand. Yeah, I mean, bo- Boxing Day they were sixth in the table. 13 behind United with a game in hand, I think it was. Yeah, but was it? The, but it, it just goes to highlight the run they were about to go on. Yes, just just how astonishing it was. Really, I don't know. I don't want to use the word unprecedented. I think there, it must, is. there must be historical examples I don't somewhere. Think there are. I'm not certain, but I don't think certainly not the 10 straight wins. I don't think that was. There were some great runs like Gary will probably remember Liverpool yeah. reeling Everton in in 85 mm. 86. But I don't think there was ever a case of a team winning 10 in a row to win I the think, league. I think, I think Everton won 10 in a row twice in 84 85. But it's different when. They were. It's slightly different to win ten in a row to reel a team in, rather because you yeah, were already ahead and just well, building and building your it's, lead further. It's. I, I mean, I don't want to. Come on, Gary. Let's move. Come on. Let's get. But it was. Let's talk about was, Everton. I, I think the. I think the first run of ten included the League Cup game or something, but I think the second run was all League games, and the reason why is that Everton lost the last two. Yes. Lost the first two games of the season and won the title with five games to go. So that. Mid thirty-seven, uh, what thirty-five games? It was a forty-two game season. Um, it there was a, a a lot of wins in that uh, mm. middle part of the season, so to speak. So I think we did ten. But you're right; it was it was rare because obviously it was a more even uh, playing field uh, to mix metaphors. Yeah, no, it was um, much more democratic. Just it, a couple of was. really important notes uh things that happened just before christmas so straight after the blackburn game first of all there was a basically tony adams instigated a cards on the table chat you hear different stories about where it happened some say it was at cafe de paris and during the christmas party the others say it was at sopwell house but anyway basically he said that what basically said standards weren't acceptable um <laughs> sounds like Paulie Walnuts. <laughs> this, this shit's unacceptable. Um, but they, they weren't defending and attacking as a team. They're almost like two halves of a team. And there was a lot of talk of Vieira and Petit not giving them enough protection. Um, and what happened subsequently is then Vieira and Petit came, became these just absolute monsters. Like incredible. And they, but they basically, I remember, I always remember Lee Dixon saying, basically, once they settled into that groove, Vieira and Petit, it was just a piece of piss playing behind them, basically. Yeah, uh, four, I, a brilliant back four protected by two. They're almost like two giants who could play. It's like having bouncers who can outsmart you. you know? <laughs> I, I just think that uh, that maybe Emmanuel Petit would fit in at the Café de Paris, uh, <laughs> the kind of place that I lurked about in the late 80s. I think probably a couple of times at the Café de Paris. <laughs> I'm not sure Ray Parler, the Romford... Uh, what was he? The Romford Pelo? Romford Pelé. Romford Pelé, yeah. yeah whether, whether he would uh, fit in, um, he'll... he'll, he'll Probably somebody will now send me photographs of him as a regular uh, haunter of that particular establishment. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, wherever it happened, that, these these things gain mythical status, don't they? When, when they you do. win, you always look back and, and the turning point was yeah yeah. yeah uh, uh, whereas if you if you don't win, um, it's a night out that's forgotten. Well, that's true. I'm sure there have been millions of similar chats of just yeah. the states, but but it feels like the timing was out because they did go on a run. There's another quite important bit just before Christmas. They played away at Wimbledon um, and it was nil nil at half time and then after about, I think it was about 10 seconds in the second half floodlights went out we learned subsequently it was the whole Asian betting syndicate thing that was going on that season where they were curtailing games so that match was rearranged for March and by the time they would get to that game they'd be in, they would be in much better form Arsenal I mean they might have won this game nil nil at half time but they weren't playing well Wimbledon were awkward so 
it was only a small thing, but I think it helped them. Um, and that took them up to Christmas, like Mike said, 13 behind United with a game in hand. Um, and that's when their magical run started. Mike? Uh, yeah, I'll sort of mention a quick thing about Ray Parler, actually. I mean, the two, I mean, he had a lot of good seasons for Arsenal. He had two amazing seasons in their double years. Yes, 97, 98 and 2001 too. And he didn't go to the World Cup with England. I can't believe well, it. That's 90, astonishing. 98 was all that talk about Ali Drury, wasn't there? Whether that's true or not, I don't know. Ask oh, the short back and sides. sides yeah. But 02, you look at look at some of the players who did go. Now, I know they have Beckham, but for a start, he wasn't fit. Yeah. But also, he could have played. He played centre mid a lot in 0102. Um Yeah, no, I, I think I thought he was brilliant around that time. Yeah. Well, Tra- Travis Sinclair ended up in the yeah, team. He played left wing, didn't yeah, and I've got yeah, I've got nothing against Travis Sinclair at all. But I just think the form he was in compared to. I Parler. suppose Parler couldn't have played left. But what he could have mm. done, you could have played Parler in the middle and shoved Paul Scholes out to the left three years ahead. But you could have done. Yeah. You know, you'd have had him in the squad certainly, <laughs> particularly because there were no certainties that Beckham would last a tournament, and if I Beckham mean, gets injured then Parler will be a very good replacement. Yeah, I, I mean, was really the, surprised by that. These days, the up the stats for Parler would have been crazy because interceptions, yeah, winning stats. the ball back, pass completions, mm. he'd, running stats, yeah, he'd have, he'd have been way, way up there uh, in, in everything. And that would have perhaps sort of uh, built his case. But there's always been, a, a, I think, a slight reluctance or a, a kind of raise lip about players who, who especially those who come through a little bit late and, and become um, much better players in their mid twenties. You know, Dennis Wise never really shook off uh, yeah, the fact that he point. was in the crazy gang when he was the, the best passing midfielder uh, in the league for a while, or certainly the best English passing midfielder um, in the league or there or thereabouts. Uh, and Parlo was the same. He wasn't the same kind of player as Dennis Wise, but because he started out with the accent and the bubble perm and everything, um, I don't think we realised how clever and how effective a footballer he was. I There's think a few like that. He was really important for them tactically as well, at the risk of boring everyone to tears. So they, they played what was kind of then described as 4 4 one You'd now probably describe as 4-2-3-1. So you have Vieira and Petit protecting Overmars, Bergkamp, Parla, and then either Anelka, Ray or Wright. But in reality, Overmars didn't do any work defensively or not much. So Parla almost allowed them to cheat and play 4-3-3-1. So he would yeah. be a central midfielder when they were defending and a right midfielder when they were attacking. And I think it was really important, actually, because it gave Overmars more freedom to just destroy teams, which he did consistently throughout the season. I, I think Parla was such an important part of that team. And I think the players do as well, don't oh, they? Yeah, the players definitely, always yeah, have yeah. a high regard for him, even if... I'm uh, probably the die-hard Gunners, uh, quite, or Gunners do, but... I think he was really important in the dressing room as well. Quite such a yeah. jaunty character. I think everyone, pretty much to a man, really liked him. Yeah. So, uh, Mike, we'll return after that uh, trip to the parlour, so to speak. Yeah, so from Boxing Day onwards... Um... Arsenal go on a, a pretty amazing run to take the title. And there's various ways you can dissect this run, I think. Um, but from Boxing Day until they win it, it's, they, they win 15 and draw three. That's pretty incredible. Right? And through that as well, they had to manage quite a few um, injuries and in keepers. So Adams was out for most of December and January. Uh, Ian Wright was out for the season from January, or effectively out for the season from January onwards. I think he came back. Uh, right at the very end, David Seaman injured his hand, I think, and he was out for about, I think, seven or eight games in February and March. And then I think Bergkamp and Vieira picked up suspensions as well. So they had to manage the 
the squad through that time. But um, the stretch I think is most impressive is from the 31st of January onwards. They keep 12 clean sheets in 14 games, um, which is just a, a testament to that back four that Wenger uh, inherited. So there's a really nice um, interview I saw with Wenger once where um, he was he was talking about um, he used to run into George Graham in the years that followed, and every time Wenger met George Graham, he said, "I can't believe these defenders that you <laughs> that you've left me like you know how well organised this back four is." And um, yeah, on this streak, there was kind of some signs of the old Arsenal DNA, I guess. You know, they had six one nil to the Arsenals in this. Um, it really, this. it really crescendo, didn't it? It started with a load of one nils, and then they almost seamlessly went into four ones and five nils and four nils. Really yeah, I mean, I th- yeah, I think the point you made about the uh, well, the the cover the back four had, um, and the, the, just the license that gave, gave to everyone ahead of them, I yeah. think, just to go because they just started marmalising teams. They crept up, didn't they? Because I remember at first they were they did have a really good run from December to the start of March, but United was still a long way ahead. But they Arsenal had games in hand, so it was slightly deceptive. But I always remember United won at Chelsea. I think it was either the end of Feb or the start of March, and everyone said, "Well, that's it, it's over." And one bookmaker paid up, didn't they? Was it Fred Dunn? Fred Dunn, yeah, he lost half a million. And, but then it, it changed really quickly. Within two or three weeks, it was properly back on. One thing that's interesting is at the same time they had their FA Cup run, and I'd actually forgotten how fraught this was. So third mm. round, they beat Port Vale on penalties after a replay. Fifth round, they needed a replay and beat Palace away. Sixth round, I remembered the West Ham game where they beat them for penalties. I think I said it was two all. In fact, it was 1-1 in the replay. Um, so it was only really... So that West Ham game is the 17th of March, which is a few days after the one at Old Trafford. So even at that stage, they were struggling a little... Not struggling, but they were they were tight wins, you know. Um, but then it became increasingly authoritative. And by the middle to the end of April, they were just demolishing teams. I mean, I remember a game, as a United fan, I remember Blackburn away looked a really tricky game. And I think they were 3-0 up after 10 minutes and 4-0 yeah. up at half-time. Thinking, oh, for fuck's sake. Mm-hmm. Um, but but yeah, even yet... Sorry, go on. I was going to say, as that kind of run started, I mean... Uh, you know they they were starting to string wins together and stuff, but also I think in January they had the they had the League Cup semi-finals as well, mm. which were two two massive games against Chelsea, which um, they lost in uh, injury time of the second leg, I think. Mm. And Chelsea, I can't remember at what point Hoyt got um, got sacked, but um, they they kind of fell away as as challengers, I think. Yeah, um, we should say there were a few who were in contention for a while at like Blackburn, yeah. Liverpool, Chelsea, but they but it soon became all about Arsenal and United. Um, yeah, oh, sorry, I've lost my thread here. <laughs> well, so this, was, this was very much the kind of United template, wasn't it? That the season starts in with a, a bit of spluttering and then after Christmas the, uh, the actually, points are just piled up and piled yeah. up. Yeah, but this was slightly different because they actually the season started pretty much in October when they were smashing everyone. Then after Christmas they started losing silly games. They lost away. Coventry 3-2. I think it was the first time they lost the Premier League game having been ahead at half-time. But what, what I mean... Oh, well, 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 Arsenal copied the United team, but yes, yeah, yes, that's absolutely. What, it's, it's, if you were looking at this and, the, you know, you, you had a, uh, the the uh, name sort of blacked out the way they, yeah, they yeah, do totally. in those reports, you would think Arsenal were United and United Arsenal, were Arsenal. Arsenal something. essentially did to United what United had done yes. to Kevin Keegan's yeah. Newcastle. That's, the interesting thing that? is... No, 
just quickly, you know, even though United were dropping, they lost at home to Leicester, they drew them to Bolton, lost to Southampton, they were still, at the end of February, it was seen as a, a done deal, basically. That wasn't a deliberate pun. But it all <laughs> changed in... They lost at Sheffield Wednesday, United, then Arsenal won at Wimbledon, the rearranged game, 1-0. Then they went to Old Trafford. I mean, this is the, the key game, 14th of March, 98. It's, like, it's one of the most famous games in Arsenal's history. But before we get to that, sorry, Mike... I was just going to say, yeah, there was at one point where, I mean, it wasn't in the league, but it was an FA Cup game where United went to Stamford Bridge and there were five up. Yes. Um, and you and that performance was devastating. Chelsea just, with the holders, like, weren't they? Chelsea with the holders and you're just, you know, really properly trying to square up to United at this point as well. Um, and they just demolished them. One thing, I mean, it, fin- it finished 5-3, but it was never that close, really. No. And, uh, One thing that happened, United started to pick up a few injuries. Like Keane was already out, and they hadn't missed him, actually, in the, the winter because they were smashing everyone. But I think when when the kind of harsh reality of a, a squeaky bum time took hold, then they needed him. Giggs got injured, which was really important at that time. Uh, Pallister did it. I think he did his back in the shower before that Chelsea game. Hmm. Um, Schmeichel would get injured quite hilariously from an Arsenal point of view in the Arsenal game. So that helped. But then again, as you said, Arsenal had enough injuries themselves. Alex Manninger came in for Seaman and kept a lot of those clean sheets, didn't he? Mm. Um, including at Old Trafford. So let's go to the Old Trafford game. Yeah, so I think, were they nine points behind with three games at hand going into it? Is that right, Mike? Yeah, because this is by by winning this, it, it put the destiny of the title in their hands for the first time. I mean, that's still uh, having three games in hand and being nine. But I mean, yes, it's it's mathematically you can make it, but it's still it's still quite. You still got to go out and do that. You've still got to go out and win those um those games. But it was um yeah, seismic. I don't think quite covers this victory. It's just. Uh, and you can see it as well. You can see it on the Arsenal players at the end, Petit yeah. in particular, uh, yeah. <laughs> the way he's jumping round. That, was... that that great shot that lad in the, the in oh, he's in the he's lovely. We we'll talk. We should talk about him a little bit. I met him actually. Mm. Yeah, it was a really authoritative victory. United had a f- couple of chances first off. Manigan made two great saves, but they were chances that came from silly Arsenal errors. Mm. Whereas Arsenal actually were creating kind of more um, worthy chances, if you like. Most through Overmars, who. Oh, he was, was put crazy, up against John Curtis, a teenage right back. Yeah. It was seen as a future England captain. I mean, it was a terrible decision for Ferguson. What I would say is Curtis is unfairly blamed for this game because he, in Ryan Giggs' book, he said Overmars scored the winner after a mistake from John Curtis. Well, Curtis wasn't even on the field at that point. He'd been subbed. Mm. So the kind of legend has grown. I've watched the game and he, there are two or three times when he does, Overmars does skin him. There should be a penalty. There's one chance he misses. But it is a highlights chasing. It's not. There are games where you see where the fullback is getting demolished all the time. And that's not quite true here. It's just two or three big first half moments. I mean, don't get me wrong, Overmars was the best and most dangerous player on the field. But I feel like Curtis gets a slightly unfair rep for this game, not least because he wasn't on the field when the winning goal was mm. scored. But I mean, generally, the longer the game went on, I think the more you felt Arsenal were probably going to win it and then over my score with that, I think about 12 minutes to go and it's interesting actually there's a there's only a very partial misjudgment from Neville he talks about it in his season diary of that that season and it's kind of one of the early examples of his punditry basically he's anal- analysing his own defending how he just for a split second makes the wrong decision to go for a header and that allows, I think it's a Nelka sort of yeah Nelka fl- flicks it back doesn't yeah he? Um, and Overmars is in and he puts it puts it past Michael um but yeah, it was such an important goal. And then United had, towards the end, United were getting desperate. There was, um, I think, Keogh 
pulled coal over like a millimetre outside the box or something. Schmeichel went up and then <laughs> tried to get back, pulled his hamstring. Um, <laughs> yeah. But it was just, there, there was no there was no argument that the best team won. Um, a couple of interesting points though, that I think anyone connected with Arsenal, and I've spoken to Amy Lawrence about this, and she said she was in the press box that day and all the kind of, she, she just kind of sent something something had changed. But I think most of the wider world hadn't got that. United was still, even though Arsenal was six behind with three in hand, United was still big favourites to win the league. And I always remember even a month later when the tide really had turned, there was an early version of Soccer Saturday and United were playing home to Newcastle and Arsenal playing home to Wimbledon. And pretty much everyone on the panel predicted a United win and an Arsenal draw, you know, Wimbledon awkward opponents. Well, Arsenal won 5-0 and United drew 1-1. And it was obvious by then that the tide had completely turned. But I, f- I find it interesting that it, it's partially hindsight, but actually the evidence was all there. The Arsenal just had this calm authority, a kind of real sense of destiny, whereas United were panicking because that young team had never really felt to win anything before. Mm. Um, and suddenly they were thrust into a situation they didn't quite understand. You know, senior players weren't there to protect them. And it was just a crisis of confidence, which happens to every team. Um, and Arsenal think... were just too good. But we should just, just quickly on the guy in the crowd, so everyone will remember... Yeah guy in a leather jacket kind of screaming dementedly mm. a guy called barry first he's he's actually a really nice guy i met him a few years ago um and it's quite a funny story about how he didn't obviously didn't know again no social media in those days um so he kind of found out really slowly through a kind of drip feed of texts and um calls from his mother and things like that um it's mm. quite funny he was on um he was on tfi friday the following week i think they, t- <laughs> they tracked they tracked him down and um Got him on the show, but what I I really love his reaction actually because I, I think now everyone everyone is aware that there's some kind of camera on them somewhere when they're in yeah, a yeah it's completely in a natural. Trail. Well, funnily enough, yeah. go on, you finish first now. Oh, I was just going to say it's in complete contrast to um, what he's reacting to as well makes the reaction more genuine. I think as well because that's mm. such an enormous. I mean, you see like all this like infantile screeching narcissism now on like you know Twitter and stuff after you know. A team's drawn nil nil two games in a row and stuff like that. You know yeah. that kind of just really showy overreaction yeah, yeah. to everything. But this is this is properly raw and properly, you know, they knew something was happening then. Yeah, I think. definitely. A couple of points on that. It was actually it was a big win for obvious reasons, but also that was the first Premier League goal they'd scored at Old Trafford in six seasons. They'd had a few near misses, but they'd never scored a goal. Mm. The other thing is, you talk about knowing when the cameras on you. He actually did four years later because when they won the double. Sky got him to do a piece when they won the double at Old Trafford to do a piece before the game. So he kind of guessed the camera would be on him. So when they again won 1 0, he was a lot more kind of calm and just smiling (laughs) and everything. It's quite interesting though because that actually kind of reflects both victories. In 0102, there was a kind of serene superiority by the time they went to Old Trafford. They were the best team in England. They kind of knew they were going to win the double. Whereas here, it was more of a sense of an uprising. they would by the end of the season they were undoubtedly the best team in England. I mean, but mm. but at the time there was a real kind of defiant, um, yeah, sense of yeah, an uprising. I guess. Do you, Do you think that some of this and I, I seldom have the facts immediately to hand, but uh, you guys are much better on it than me. Is that you bring um, the, you bring the colour, Gary? <laughs> uh, we'll do, do the facts. The, yeah. <laughs> do you think the um, 
there might be some of what we talked about in in part one in that although this was a you know a very english defense seaman had, had gone out and manninger who i think was austrian was he uh, mm. was was he, keeping he had an amazing time by the way he it, made some it, hugely important mm. saves but do you think there was a reluctance on the part of of the the mainstream media which was the only real media there was then uh, to acknowledge that a side that was led by uh, a frenchman in in and the key components, certainly the attacking components, were the, the, the two French defensive midfielders, Vieira and Petit, uh, Bergkamp at number 10, Overmars and Elka, uh, Christopher Ray. I mean, was this the first time that in league football there was a demonstrably European uh, team yes. that were not folding, that were not being fancy down continentals, but that were actually harder and better at grinding out the one nils than the Anglo-Saxon Brotherhood, who you know sort of raised on the baseball grounds, muddy fields, and the the, the gillies of Scot Scotland's uh, back street to the gorbals and so on, <laughs> and, and whether that was that that played into this, and I can remember it at the time, that, that United are going to come good and, mm. you know, Fashes and Vinnie Jones are going to get hold of Arsenal and all that kind of thing. Uh, possibly, yeah. What I would say is by the end of the season, there was a, a wall-to-wall celebration of Arsenal. Um, yeah. Partly there was glee that United had been stuffed, essentially, but mainly it was just that, like you said yesterday, it felt like football from the future, really. Yeah. Mm. Um, so I think it was simply that United won four out of five Premier League titles, like Mike said, and I think people were just just expecting to come good like they usually did. I, I think there's probably an element of it, though. Yeah, I think it, the attitude to Arsenal changed really quickly, but then they changed really quickly. They went in the space of about six weeks from being probably the best of the rest, but still a fair way off, to being undeniably the best team in England yeah. and a team who would be good enough to challenge what would subsequently become Man United's best team. Because even as you know, I know it's a bit boring to do it from a United fan's perspective, but I think it's important because they'd only failed to win the league twice since they became good, if you like, in the summer in 91. Two teams that beat were Leeds and Blackburn. Both were worthy champions, but you could you could rationalise it, you know. Leeds, United collapsed and have four games in a week. Blackburn, well, if United won on the last day, and also Blackburn collapsed towards the end but stumbled over the line... Here, you couldn't find a single excuse. Arsenal were the best team in England, no question. You could talk about injuries, fine, but it was the way Arsenal won was just too persuasive for that. So, obviously, it was not a particularly enjoyable experience, but certainly I felt just like complete respect for how good they were. Yeah, uh, speaking of not completely enjoyable experiences, there's one coming up for all uh, uh-huh. Evertonians. <laughs> uh, before we get there, Mike, do you want to just steer us to, to the... Uh, to the end of the season or the end of the league season anyway yeah i mean so uh, it wasn't immediately post uh, the united game i think that that might have been this was that the second of the one nil wins i think yes that's right they had five in six games i think but so by start by sort of march april i mean they just started obliterating teams i mean they beat uh, they beat newcastle 3-1 at highbury mm. um one quick thing went... on that, just very quickly. Does a mm. Vieira scores a stunning goal in that game for about twenty-five yards? But what I love yeah. about it is the nonchalance of his celebration. There's no excitement. It's just that, yeah, that's the level we're at now. We're doing things like that, and I think that was quite significant as to how much their confidence, their particularly as an attacking team, had come on in the previous month. 
Yeah, I mean, the way he picked it up and hit that. It's an extraordinary goal. goal. Yeah, it was goal of the month, wasn't it, I think? Possibly, yeah, it's a fantastic yeah. goal. It was, like a, got, but... it was like an extended version of his um, goal against United in the 3-2. The same kind of... Par- it was slightly more central, but it was the same kind of parabola, if that's yeah. what Yeah, and it's the kind... It's the sort of... Yeah, and it's the sort of goal where you just think, God, this is a team going places here. Just yeah. Yeah. The one that... Full of confidence. The one that got... I mean, they then went to... Blackburn's the one. Oh, sorry. No, Blackburn's the one. They were absolutely devastating in that game. Yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, there were four up in, uh, was it, f- well, before half-time, wasn't it? And, yeah, do you remember, uh, Nelk, doesn't the Nelk do the keeper with a step over? Yeah, it does. Yeah, ridiculous. It's... That's a classic example of what we were talking about in part one. The the kind of, the easy devastation of a through ball to an Nelk and you just can't, how do you stop it? Yeah, and I think what people need to remember when they, when they look back at this kind of era, through through the lens of like you know the the big club yes. era that we live in now is that you know Blackburn and you know Newcastle are proper competitive yeah. sides then, like, yeah. w- way more so than they are, or or the or the the, uh, the equivalents would be now I think, um, which is which is one thing that makes this run so much more impressive as well is like the the league was so much more competitive then exactly it's been sort of slightly yeah you're right you sit through the lens now you think ten in a row yeah but yeah. actually back then it was. I think, if not unprecedented, it was bloody close to it. It was extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. and then um, they they smash Wimbledon at home five uh, nil, um, and I think yeah, we're probably going to get onto your. Uh, were you at this, Gary? The, the, I wasn't. Yeah. I wasn't. I was at uh, my brother's house. I think watching it, and uh, yeah, but I can. I, think I can was, still see the the, was, the last goal. It was a Sunday right before May Day, wasn't it? Yeah. So I think was, I yeah. think they only needed a draw. Think or did they need to win? Either way, basically everyone knew it was it was a it was that lovely um, moment when you know something's going to happen but it hasn't happened yet, so you can just luxuriate in it for a while. <laughs> they scored mm. early, I think a Billich own goal, um, then just became a procession. Overmars scored twice. Um, this is against Everton, obviously, yeah. um, and then yeah, the penultimate minute, just the most per- like I love Martin Tyler's commentary. That sums it all up. It's just the, the most perfect line. Bold Steve Bold lofts a pass over the defence. Adams kind of humps it forward and then just belts a left foot half volley. It's just, it's just the most perfect moment. I, I, I still, I still, yeah, I still I, expect him to put that wide. <laughs> and actually, we should, yeah, we should just say his celebration like the Messiah. That's now his statue, isn't it? Yeah, 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 that's great, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, I think he had a touch of the Mussolini's about the raised chin in that celebration, but maybe that's uh, just me feeling the pain. Um, I, that that match more than most Everton matches, and we were later. I think we we lost six one on the first day of the season to to Arsenal. They've given us a few shellackings, but um, there's there's a spitting image sketch which is I, I really must sort of keep as a bookmark or something because it's always hard to track down and it's Henry Cooper um, doing a, a masterclass with Julian Lloyd Webber on the cello so Julian Lloyd Webber starts playing the cello the bell rings <laughs> and to Harry Carpenter's uh, commentary given by uh, Chris Barry um Henry Cooper comes out and starts punching the hell out of Julian Lloyd Webber to this sort of uh, more and more manic uh, commentary. And that match was very much Julian Lloyd Webber against Henry Cooper. I <laughs> promise you that. So, it's okay, yeah, a couple of nice celebratory moments. And I get, you know, they get the medals at the end. And so Adams, um, yeah, it's a wonderful, but particularly where he'd been two years, yeah, exactly. well, less, less than two years earlier as well. Um, the 
sheer glee of Ian Wright when he gets his, uh, his medal. It's just, oh, it's fantastic. And he's running around shouting, Roy Keane, winner's medal. The pa- What's the story that Akeem's, Akeem giving him the usual speech about? Well, when they used to play each other. Cup medals or something. Yeah, apparently Wright used to get some stick off his teammates for like, so he turned up after the 91 title. Yes. And, and they had, so only like, you know, jovial stuff. But um, when they used to play each other, they're quite, you know, vocal characters, Wright and Keane. Keane used to say to him, all right, he's got a, what's this? Something like, all right, he's got a box full of losers medals or something <laughs> something like that. So, um, yeah, and he, do, he does it right, right down camera and right. Just the, <laughs> the kind of, <laughs> They kind of pointed out to him, but um, yeah, I think it's worth pointing out as well that they won this league with um, 78 points. Uh, Arsenal, I'm just looking now, they scored 68 goals. Mm. So, but I, I would make the point again about the competitive depth of the league was yes. so much different. That's why I get annoyed when when people look at you know, like Liverpool and City now, it's like well, they must yeah. be the best team ever because they, they've taken 100 points and stuff. It's no 80 in it, those days, 80 was extremely high. Yeah, eighty was worth probably ninety-five now. Yeah, I mean it's so upsiding down in terms of you know the competitive depth in the league, isn't it, and stuff. So yeah. I just think it's not it's not, it's not like a fair it's not a like for like comparison. Yeah, nor is when the you goals them, because no. you know, the the rules have changed obviously uh, for for goals and sixty-eight goals is definitely sort of eighty-eight now, maybe more than that. Um, so yeah, it's very hard to draw straight lines between the two, but it doesn't mean that you you can't compare. And we're going to do that towards the end. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the the it's kind of overlaying one season onto another, where the seasons are separated by a generation, is just you know it's it's not possible really. There's one just one quick story. Um, sadly, I don't think it's true, and uh, Wenger has denied it. But um, in the middle of this run, straight after they won at Old Trafford. Um, Man United went out of Europe to Monaco, Wenger's old team, three days later or four days later. And there's a story in one book that Wenger basically enjoyed it so much that he got absolutely hammered and the next day had to call off training after about half an hour. I, I Sadly, I asked Lee Dixon about this and he couldn't remember and Wenger subsequently denied it. But it's such a nice story. Um, we should say actually that, again, as well as Arsenal being Britain, there was a Wenger just completely kind of owned Ferguson after the um, the biggest compliment really after the one at Old Trafford Ferguson started up his mind game saying well they'll drop points for the end of the season and he was kind of right but they only dropped them after they won the league because they were half pissed um, <laughs> so it was a really there was a lovely sense for Arsenal and actually for most English football of just of United being put in their place and uh, Fergie was actually very gracious though about how good they were which subsequently wouldn't be the case uh, when they won the league in 02 and 04 and it became more and more spiteful you know some of the comments are absolutely ludicrous like um when Arsenal went unbeaten for the whole season Fergie said too many draws that's not championship form <laughs> but the previous season when United won the league Lauren the right back said well we've been top of the league for more weeks so we're, we're the better team it became really spiteful like that but actually at this stage that wasn't necessarily the case I think there was a huge amount of um mutual respect as well as the uh dislike Oh, and there's one, one of those, a nice thing at the end of the season. I think David Dean and Arsene Wenger went somewhere for a function or something and checked into a hotel, and Wenger had to sign his like occupation, and Dean just took it off him and wrote Miracle Worker. <laughs> Very good. So um, it's not over then, though, is it? Uh, they, they go on. So, um, Mike, do you want to pick up the cup run? Um, 
Yeah, so that's right. Rob said earlier the 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 run to the final was a bit uh, fraught. It was often in jeopardy, and you know, two penalty shootouts um, in that row. Port Vale and West Ham, wasn't it? I think. Yes. Um, but yeah, I mean, they get to the final with uh, with Newcastle. Um, Newcastle with so, but not Newcastle as um, as we kind of knew them in their mid nineties. Pomp by this point, they'd sold. Ferdinand and they sold Genoa and Shearer was just back from his um was it is that was that an ankle injury he had? Um I think it was crucial, wasn't it? Oh crucial, yeah. sorry, that put him out, wasn't it? Yeah. Um But yeah, I mean Newcastle. But you know, it wasn't really the same player. And um I remember this just being a very the final just being a very slow arm wrestle in which you kinda knew just Newcastle were just gonna uh cave at some point. And um yeah, Overmars who his knack of scoring in big games through this season was uh, uh, was pretty crucial. I'd say he put them one ahead, and then uh, as Anelka seals it in the second half, long ball over the top, and then um, just drills it into the bottom corner. It's the at that point it's the third double in five seasons in England. And if you think there've been five in the previous hundred and six years, I think it is. Um, and you know, and United would go on to do it the following season as well. So it's, uh, yeah, that was that was kind of a, quite a unique feat as well. And then, uh, yeah, on from from the cup final, then Petit and Vieira go on both win the World Cup. Uh, you know, Burkamp and Overmars, they're in the Dutch team that finishes fourth, and um, you know, Seaman and Adams are, are go on to the World Cup with England as well. But um, yeah, I don't. It, it wasn't really a closely contested cup final. I don't think. Um, I just there was no way Arsenal were going to lose that. Although I do need to say actually that after they'd sealed sealed the league against Everton, they did lose their last two games. They got thrashed by Liverpool, and then they lost to Aston Villa on the final day as well. So they had kind of um, they had, they had kind of uh, sort of let their standards drop a little bit in the, the league, but they they got them back easily enough. The, the, the Liverpool final. the Liverpool game was three days after Everton, so. I think we can, oh, it? We can draw certain conclusions. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I always think those those games after you've won a title are a bit like kind of match play golf when uh, you kind of walk off winning four and three, four up with three to play. But if you if you were the winning golfer and you had to play those three holes, you know, you, you, you'd hit a putter off the tee, wouldn't you? And you'd chip, try and chip in from the bunker and all of that. Because what does it matter? It, does, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter. I know there's professional pride and all this kind of stuff. And these days there'd be some tremendous hype machine going that, that would that would say that there's a there's a coefficient which would would uh, help them in, get to sort of uh, buy in the in into the later stages of the Champions League in 2025 and all this kind of stuff. But really, um, you you never or I certainly would never hold it against players if uh, if they've won the title and then uh, don't exactly uh, put themselves too far out. Of course, there are problems with that when relegation matters and uh, Champions League places are up for grabs, but these people are only human. Yeah, give them a break, yeah. as they say. If you've been playing with that intensity since Boxing Day, I mean, it's, it's, it's just inevitable, isn't it? <laughs> that, you know, once the job's done, I mean, yeah, how on earth do you kind of return immediately to that level yeah so um shall we 
wrap up uh, this two-parter on uh, Arsenal uh, 97-98 with the uh, with the question that I alluded to early on, and I want I want to come to you first, if I may, Mike. Which is, you know, where do they rank as an Arsenal team? There's some good ones in recent and past history. Um, you've already said that uh, that doubles were few and far between um, in the early part of. Or for most of the 20th century, in fact, but one of the doubles uh, was in 1971 with uh, Charlie George uh, scoring the goal at uh, at Wembley and then lying on his back. I can remember watching that as a kid. Um, where does this uh, where does this Arsenal team rank? Ooh, well, I'm probably not qualified to say not being an, an Arsenal fan, but um, and also I've got um, I don't know a lot about the 71 double team and even less about Herbert Chapman's team. But, um, yes. <laughs> I would say you haven't done your research, have you, Mike? Yeah, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, I would compare them. So I'd compare them maybe to yeah, George Graham's Arsenal, and I guess the Invincibles. Then, although it's like the the most impressive Arsenal team I think I've ever seen, never actually won the Premier League. So it was the start of the 2002-3 season, where there was a patch for about three months where I just thought this is one of the best football well, the, teams I've the, ever seen. They're amazing. The paradox, just um, quickly, the, the paradox of that Arsenal era is the best football they played was at the start of two seasons when they didn't win the league, 0-3-3 and 0-4-0-5. Kind of on the bounce from winning it the previous season, but then being yeah. reeled in by <clears throat> Ferguson or Mourinho. Anyway, sorry. Um, yeah, so I just think, uh, as an achievement, I just think you know, it's it's only, it's Wenger's first full season. Um, you need to remember that. It's a great sort of influx time in English football as well and the fact they hold in a United team um, that had won four of the previous five we said the the run they went on I mean you see that now don't you I think it's a the, the last time Chelsea won it they won was it 14 in a row at some point to take the league but it was just it felt like something we hadn't seen before this Arsenal double team so I, I, I would rank it um I would pro- probably rank them second in the in you know when you when you actually weigh it all in the scales of the Arsenal teams I've seen. But I think I think they're a really important team in the in the history of the Premier League. One of the most important teams, I would say, so, just because of the way they the way they change things in, yes. in terms of that approach off the pitch, and you know, and the way in a lot of ways the way they played as well. I think um, yeah, I don't know what you think, Rob. But... No, I think that's perfectly put. Um, yeah, so 2001-2 when they won the double, they won the last 13. But in some ways, I think this is more impressive. Um, I think this is the best Arsenal team I've seen. I mean, it's such a personal thing. I know most people say the Invincibles. I think you can make a good argument for the 0102 team almost being the best of both worlds, a bit of the Invincibles, mm. a bit of 97-98. But I think this team had, because they had the original back four in full, plus obviously they didn't have Henri and Pirates at this stage, but they still had a lot of brilliant attacking players I just feel like it's the best of both worlds I feel like they were slightly more resilient than the invincible team who as great as they were I always felt they were slightly susceptible to pressure which you sort of saw in the way they eventually collapsed completely after that admittedly scandalous defeat at Old Trafford in 2004 and even the 0 team you talk about who were again absolutely exhilarating they did crack a bit under pressure mm. I don't know whether this team did I mean obviously they would go on the next season and they came painfully close to doing the double and ended up winning nothing but I don't think they cracked under the pressure in fact just quickly to diverge that season the Bergkamp 
famous penalty miss and the uh, FA Cup semi-final defeat against Man United. People talk about that determining the league, and it did, but not because of the impact it had on Arsenal. I think they won their next two games, 5-6-1. It was only because it gave United a, an even greater sense of um, destiny. But I don't know, I just feel like this team, because they had the probably the best back four in English football history, um, as well as so many brilliant attacking players, I just feel like I just make them slightly better than the other two. But I, yeah, I, I mean, suspect that's in my. I suspect that's an outside of you. Yeah, I, lo- I love the. Um, I love that it feels like a hybrid team to me. Like yeah, exactly. Rob, with that, with that, um, that back four, and also just uh, the the sheer pace of the way that I, th- I think that's something I hadn't quite seen like that before. Yeah, overall, we, we, we had yeah with Burkamp playing from deep. Um, to find them, and it's yeah they they just put that astonishing run together. Well, they, it was almost like they were in transition while they were doing it. It's incredible, yeah, exactly. really, to, to, to win a league title. Um, they took a shortcut. They took a shortcut, didn't they, from good to great in the space of about six weeks. Yeah, it, it's incredible. I, mean, I said maybe the one thing you could say about them is that when they went into the Champions League the following season, I mean, they were, they were really poor in that. Yeah. But, you know, they were playing at Wembley. Yeah. Um. You know, English football, I suppose, hadn't found its way back at the very, very top level yet. And I mean, United were getting there. But, it was the, um, yeah, Arsenal hadn't had experience before. Obviously, yeah. they had in the early nineties, but not this team. But you're, yeah, that's a weird thing about that whole Arsenal era, really. How crap they were in Europe. I don't quite understand that. Um, certainly towards the end of the Invincibles. But it, I mean, again, it, sometimes football just doesn't make sense, does it? Because they they were crap when they were brilliant, and then in two thousand five six when they were shit in the league. They end up going all the way to the Champions League final with a back four of who was it? Flamini, Senderos, Touré, yeah. and Boué or something. So, yeah, sometimes I mean, it, it just doesn't make sense. They played at Wembley, didn't they? they yes, uh, they moved that was their a Greek big games, That was a yeah. big mistake. Hmm. You know, it's it's listening to you. I was I was sure what I was going to say, and now I've been put off by it. But it just it shows how difficult it is to use blunt force weapons like, you know, best team or, or more threatening or whatever we want to do, because I, I would find it impossible um, to take a side uh, with Henri and Perez in it and say there was a, there was a better team a couple of years later and we put, Oh, couple of years earlier um you put Perez and Henri in and somehow it's not as good as the as the the, the previous version but what that kind of illustrates is when you're talking about a a, a great side are, are you talking about a side that can handle a season from beginning to end and the injuries that come up and the and the playing the big games and then the putting away the awkward sides away from home and the you know wet night in Stoke and all that kind of stuff and listening to you I think I think you're probably right that the the, the sheer shock of the new uh, that was Wenger's first full season and the foreign players coming through and the changes in attitude towards diet and Tony Adams um, going dry and so on. Uh, there, it, it was an extraordinary kind of confluence of 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 newness that that came together and all worked and and the others had to catch up and you kind of think well. How did they do all of that and and sustain it, albeit with that that blip 
not just to win a title, but to win a double as well. And there must have been such attitude and backbone and belief in that side that, that you know, increasingly I'm thinking, yeah, maybe better than the Invincibles. Look how um, many winners they had. I know it's yeah. such a cliche, but come on. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah. that's one thing I really like about them, actually, is that um, they're maybe in English for one of the first examples of what we now call a power team. Yeah. yeah, and the fact that they, that they had a lot of players as well with just like real edge to them, and I'm, I'm not, I won't over romanticise, you know, the, um, the more tetchy, edgy uh, era of English football where there was a lot more physical intimidation, but that, that was still a factor in that era, and you yeah. know, to to be a competitive team at the very top level, you had to stand up to that. There's a quote in Roy Keane's book, uh, his first autobiography, where he says, um. Ferguson always said to us, "Match them for aggression, and you'll beat them at football." Mm. And uh, yeah, you did have to you did have to stand up to that, and mm. they did. Well, Petit had a funny relationship, didn't he? Because with English football, because Petit was a bloody intimidating bloke, but he was often mm. grumbling about the ne- violent nature of tackles. I think there was one game, didn't he throw shin pads away? It might even have been this Everton game, actually. When it, was it Don Hutchinson? Oh, Don Hutchinson, that's a yeah. horrible with a vile yeah. tackle on him. So yeah. he had a strange, slightly strange relationship, and eventually he left, obviously. Barcelona, but you're right. They could just, they, yeah. It's that classic cliche. As soon as you start talking about about Liverpool team, do you want to have a fight or do you want to play football? Because either way, mm-hmm. and it was kind of like that with Arsenal, really. Particularly yeah. once they got Vieira and Petit's role um, tightened. I've read so much about that, and actually, I'd love to watch one of the early games, a random game, like say when they were stuffed at Derby, to see if Vieira and Petit were all over the place. Because you think of them the team they became just this most brilliant protection I mean to have those two in front of you Jesus I mean mm. even I could play centre half behind those two <laughs> it's true and on perhaps the uh, the image of Rob Smythe playing centre half <laughs> next to Tony Adams and behind scoring... Emmanuel Petit I'll, I'll be I'll score the goal and stand there like a messiah yeah. swishing yeah. the half volume to, yeah you can have you can have a statue next to Tony Adams at yeah, Ashburton yeah. Grove, yeah, uh, splendid. Well, I think we'll uh, we'll call that a wrap on our our deep dive into Arsenal's ninety seven ninety eight uh, side. And if you've enjoyed Ness and Dorma, and let's face it, you must have pretty small life if you if you've listened to three hours of us talking and not enjoyed it, then you might want to consider supporting us on Patreon dot com forward slash Ness and Dorma. And um, who doesn't love a tier these days? I think there are two <laughs> tiers that you can uh, that you can support us and help pay for our microphones and our broadband and, and, and stuff like, like that. So uh, please go to patreon.com forward slash Ness and Dorman if you've enjoyed that. And, and that will help us to ensure that we're back soon. And also, if you have any ideas for uh, features, big subjects, or even just a player of the pod then tweet them at Nessendormapod. Yeah, and uh, we do have some um, exclusive uh, content there for, for Patreon uh, subscribers, and uh, we're, we're due to be recording one of those quite soon, I think, Rob. So uh, yes. I think we'd better get on with our lives away from the uh, podcast. So it <laughs> remains only for me to thank our uh, team at Nessendorma. So that's a thanks to uh, Rob Smythe. Thank you. And a thanks to Mike Gibbons. Thanks, guys. And I've been at Gary Naylor 999. Thank you for listening. And we'll be back with you very soon.
Social Podcast Network. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.